Before we jump into the text, I do want to announce that we are having a beach baptism coming up August the 8th at 2 p.m. at Corona Del Mar. Um, that's Pirate's Cove. And it's going to be a, a super awesome time. I'm super excited about it. If you want to get baptized, if you've never been baptized or you, you would like to get baptized, then uh, join us. And we're going to just be allowing the Spirit to do His work. And we've been seeing this. We've been seeing the Holy Spirit come upon people in this book of Acts. And this is brand new for the early church that existed right after Jesus' time, where they had not experienced the Holy Spirit coming upon them, living in them, and working through them as ever before. That was why Jesus, when he was crucified, died on the cross, and then resurrected, when he reappeared to his disciples as the resurrected Savior, he told them, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And he's going to fill you with power, and you're going to be baptized with fire. And this is something we pray for. We pray that God would baptize us by his Holy Spirit. And that actually has a lot to do with our text this morning. The title of my message today is Selfishness versus Surrender. And we're going to be looking at two characters, two individuals in the book of Acts. One being Simon the sorcerer, and two being Philip in this eunuch from Ethiopia. And as we study this, I want you guys to, to take notes, to look at the differences between these men, to look at how the Spirit works through those who are surrendered and how we are not to use God as a means for gain, for our own selfish gain. So with that, in Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. This is referring to, if you recall, last week we talked about Stephen. He was uh, one of those seven that were chosen to help serve in the early church. And Stephen was the first martyr of the church when he began to preach Jesus Christ, the religious Jews at the time. The Pharisees became very angry that Stephen was preaching in the name of Jesus. And as we read last week, he preached to them. He caused them to become condemned, convicted in their hearts so much that they attacked him and stoned him. And as they were stoning Stephen, remember Stephen was praying, asking, Jesus, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he was looking up into heaven, and Jesus received Stephen, the first martyr, into heaven. And that whole time as that was happening, there was a man named Saul, who was one of the big Pharisees, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he was standing there, consenting to these men stoning Stephen. And he was holding all the coats of the guys who were throwing the stones at Stephen. And Saul, at this point in time, 
I believe, is beginning to become convicted about what he's doing to the Christians. Again, in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death, referring to Stephen. Also, keep in mind, uh, when you read your Bible, you're going to come across chapters and verses. Uh, Those actually were not in the original text, the chapters and the verses. The words were, but it was just like one long scroll, one long letter that Luke would have been writing about the early church. He didn't break it up into chapters and sections and put subtitles on his thoughts and his ideas. That was what uh, scribes did much later on. And so sometimes the way they divided the chapters and the verses, sometimes they they seem a little uh, misleading as it would have made more sense if the beginning on chapter 8, verse 1, now Saul was consenting to his death, would have been better placed in the end of chapter 7, at the end of that chapter. But that's nothing to get distraught over. It's just something to note. So at the beginning, again, it says, now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So now once they've killed Stephen, the religious leaders began to persecute that first church, the early Christians. And the church at this time, the apostles and the disciples, they began to go become under trial. And it was because of this very reason that once they saw Stephen was killed, these Christians began to scatter and to go into different places so that they could be spread out, so that they could avoid death. Now, they're under persecution, and oftentimes it is under persecution that the church actually begins to grow. You see, so many times when we're in seasons of peace, the strength of the church fails. But in times of persecution, the church, it begins to draw closer to the Lord and grows strong. I believe that's what God had intended for this season of COVID, where when everything was running as it should have been, as operating as normal, perhaps there were some of us who had grown lax in our ministry, in our devotion to the Lord, in our service to the Lord. And then when COVID came, there was a fear that came upon us. And there was a fear that even came upon the church And it's caused us to seek the Lord. It's caused us to draw near to him. To ask what he desires, to ask for help. We are growing as a church because we're becoming more in tune with what God has intended us to. I love how conversation has become more important where it's as if when we were first cut off with everything was closed down. The entertainment gods of of sports and movies and all types of those outdoor activities were closed. We didn't have that 
that idolatry in our life anymore, the possibility for it. So then we begin to focus on our family, focus on leading our family, on, on, on growing spiritually. So it is often a, something that you find is that many times under trial, people become closer to the Lord. And sometimes during victory, uh, seasons of victory, people lose their strength in the Lord. Now, it's said that the apostles stayed there in Jerusalem, but everybody else scattered. And in verse 2, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. See, they loved Stephen. After he was killed, they had this burial and they were, they were mourning over him. I do see that when a believer perishes that we have reason to rejoice and hope. Knowing that this life that we live, it's a pilgrimage. It's a, it's a journey which at its end leads to when you're in Christ into eternity. Now, I'm not going to take away from mourning or take away from the heartache that comes from losing a person. That's very real and there's a time for mourning. But the mourning is for us because we've lost something so close to us, something so sweet, something so beautiful. We've lost. But the rejoicing is in where that person who is in Christ now is. You see, it's wrong for us to be sad that somebody is with the Lord. See, when somebody, when you love a person, you want them to be with God. You want them to be in his presence fully, completely just in perfection, without sorrow, without pain, without heartache. They're with the Lord. So the morning is for ourselves because we've lost. But there's so much rejoicing and hope in Christ. It says in verse three, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now, keep in mind, the Saul that we're reading about right here, this, as we know, is going to be the man who becomes Paul, who ends up writing so much of the New Testament, pages and pages of the New Testament. So God is going to get a hold of him. But right here, we see Saul is becoming increasingly terrible to the Christians. I'm reminded that oftentimes when a person is at their worst, they may come to an end of themselves and turn to Christ. Sometimes we think someone is so far gone from the Holy Spirit, so far gone from the Lord that they'll never be saved. We're like, oh yeah, right, that person can never get saved. But it's oftentimes as that person is so hard to deal with or so angry and that they get so corrupt within themselves that they break and turn to the Lord. And we should be praying, praying that God would do an amazing work in people's lives. It says in verse four, therefore, those who were scattered 
went everywhere preaching the word. And this is what I love about God's work is that sometimes we see the trial, we see the disappointments. We see here that the church is being persecuted, that people have to go run and hide. But we also see that God is sovereign over all of this, even the scattering of the Christians. Because why? He wanted the word to get preached everywhere. He didn't want the word just to stay in Jerusalem. God intended for the word to spread out. And he allowed for the Christians to become attacked by the religious leaders in order so that this can get done. So many times we we fight against the Lord's uncomfortable situations that he gives us. Sometimes we're we're so uh, against changes in our life, against new situations that we're not comfortable with. But it's through these very uncomfortable situations that the Lord gets his work done, that he's able to fill you with the spirit so that you might do what that perfect will is from the Lord. Look at where we're at today in a backyard. We have masks on. And, you know, sometimes we just are like, I hate the mask and you want to throw it on the floor. But God knows exactly why. He put it in man's heart to show us that we need to wear the mask right now. He knows what he's doing. In other situations in your life, just know that God is sovereign. He's in control. And when you don't have control over that situation, just surrender it to the Lord. So it says in verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now, this Philip that we're about to read, begin reading about, this is not Philip the apostle, not Philip one of the 12 disciples of Christ. This is the Philip who was chosen to be a deacon alongside of Stephen the martyr. Remember in Acts chapter 6, they needed uh, men to take care of the Hellenists, the widows, because they were being left out of the service. So they selected seven men, including Stephen, and also including this man, Philip. So he was chosen to be a deacon. And then as he is preaching Christ... He began to perform miracles and people were beginning to see this and they began to listen to what he had to say. And in verse seven, it says, for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Wow. We see Christ's power here Over darkness, we see that there were unclean spirits that through Philip, through Christ, came out of people. Now something to note is that the spiritual realm is very real. That there are angels, there are demons. Right now there's a lot of talk about aliens, right? 
It's like, oh, the, the, the Pentagon's got the UFOs. They're coming out with all this information now. And you know what? If there's things out there that we don't understand, according to the, the Bible, Satan can transform into an angel of light. So are there forces at work that we don't understand? Absolutely. And we don't have power over that. Jesus does. So we don't need to bear up arms to go against war right now, against demons. What we need to do is we need to get on our knees and ask God to fill us with his spirit. Because you might get that phone call one day where somebody's just feeling like there's some sort of demonic oppression on them. And you need to be able to pray for them and to also let them know and warn them that sin is a doorway for these demonic forces to enter into their life. And that sometimes also, because you're a believer in the Lord, that's the very reason why the demons aren't atta- or are attacking you. Sometimes it's not because of sin. Sometimes it's because you're doing God's work. So we're in a spiritual battle. And we need to realize that. But we also need to remember that Christ overpowers the darkness. Greater is he in you, that's the Holy Spirit, that's Jesus, than he who is in the world. Now, speaking of darkness, look at verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, and they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. This man is the great power of God. That's what these people were saying to him about this guy. Now, what's interesting is how these people are so impressed by this sorcerer. I think of the the magicians that we have today, David Blaine and all the other cool illusional trick guys. But this man here was astonishing the crowd because he was probably messing around with demonic forces. And what he was doing is he was stealing the glory of God. That was his practice. Because people began to say that this man is the great power of God. And that was a huge mistake. We never touch God's glory and take ownership of it. It belongs to him and him alone. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, In the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and he was baptized. When he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, here's something interesting. Simon, this sorcerer, sees Philip, a man anointed of the Lord, 
performing miracles and signs. And Simon is drawn to this. Why? Because he, know, he recognizes that there is power in the Lord. There was a, a Christian who was interviewed. Perhaps you've heard this. I, I don't recall the man's name. But he began to become influenced by the occult and uh, black magic. And he was diving into that world of demonic practice. And the way he got saved, it was quite interesting, was that he began to think logically about realizing that there was power, uh, there was forces and powers that he was dealing with. One day he realized that if this demonic realm that I am meddling with, if there's power in it, then I, I wonder how po much powerful, how much more powerful God is. And because of this idea that he had, he began to turn to seek out answers if God and Jesus were real. Because he recognized that there was a devil. He recognized that there were forces that he was dealing with. And that actually led him to turn to the light. And it kind of reminds me of what we're reading here about Simon. Simon recognizes, wow, there's power in the name of Jesus. And he's drawn to it. But my question is, what was Simon's motive in following after Philip? Let's find out. Look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the disciples there in Jerusalem are hearing that there's a bunch of converts now in Samaria. So they're like, all right, send Peter and John so that they can pray over these guys. But notice that there is different stages in a believer's life. You see, these converts, they had received salvation already. And then some of them had already been water baptized. And then Peter and John go to pray over them so that they can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, as you study the Bible, you're going to see that there are stages in a believer's life. Salvation comes first. And then after that, there could be a mixture of maybe you get water baptized or baptized by the Holy Spirit first or vice versa. And this actually can all take place at the same time too. You can have all three experiences happen in the same moment. And there are positions of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. Are you guys ready for a quiz? I'm going to quiz you guys today. So the, the Holy Spirit first comes alongside of a person to convict them of sin, to draw them to God. 
And then there's a second position that the Holy Spirit takes place. Does anyone know what that second position is of the Holy Spirit? Indwelling, yes. That is the in experience. The N. So when the Holy Spirit comes inside of a person, that happens at conversion. That happens when somebody gets saved. The Holy Spirit makes that person home. The Holy Spirit lives inside of that person. And then there's a third position of the Holy Spirit. Does anyone know what that third position is? Amen. The upon experience. So that is when the Holy Spirit not only is inside somebody, but is so much inside of somebody that the Holy Spirit begins to flow out of that person and into others. And this is, it's recognized. These people, these converts had already received salvation. They had already been baptized. But Peter and John went here to pray over them that they could receive this full Holy Spirit empowerment so that they could also begin to be used greatly by the Lord. In verse 18, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. You see here, Simon is trying to earn this gift of God by works, by money, by monetary value. And it was because he had this sin, this bitterness in him, this jealousy. But the gift of God cannot be earned by works. We know about this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For grace, by grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, you can't earn God's grace. You can't earn salvation. You can't earn the Holy Spirit. It's grace that's given to us, this gift that we are so thankful to receive. We didn't have to work for it. And the, also the amazing thing, I'm glad we didn't have to work for it because if we had to work for it, then that would mean that we would possibly lose it. If we had to work for salvation, then that would mean that today when I got cut off on the freeway and started to become angry that I wanted to kill somebody, that would that'd be it. That's it. The gift is gone. But the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That's Romans eleven twenty nine. 
You see, sometimes we think that our gift from the Lord is in the talents or the, the items that we possess, the material things that we possess. But our gift can't be taken away from us. We can choose to deny a gift. We can choose to say, I, I don't want this in my life and deny it the Holy Spirit and reject him. But it can't be robbed from us. Sometimes I myself have struggled with the idea that it will, as I was becoming a maturing in the Lord, that my gift was in my guitar playing or my singing. But the guitar and my guitar playing, if I was to have my hands hurt so that I couldn't play guitar anymore, that wouldn't mean that I've lost my gift. If I lose my voice, that still wouldn't mean that I've lost the gift. You see, the gift is what the Holy Spirit has given you that's spiritual. You see, God still has his gifts of, of leadership, of love, of, of pastorship, of service. Those are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And when God calls you, that cannot be removed. And sometimes we, we think we're not using our, our gift because God has us in a season of waiting or of wilderness. And we're like, well, I need to exercise this gift. I, I, I'm not using my gift. I need to be using. And you don't understand that God has you in that season of waiting for a reason. That God is doing a work. Now, what Simon was doing here when he was offering money so that he can purchase this gift that he saw, what he wanted was to use God for his own gain. You see, he didn't really care so much about souls and about God's work, about converting converts. What he cared about was becoming great in the eyes of man. And he was using God for his own gain. The Bible warns us not to use God for selfish ambition. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it says this, Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add Affliction to my chains, Paul wrote. And again, Paul also wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. See, it's wrong for us to use Jesus as a mean for our own selfish gain. Oftentimes, people will slap Jesus' face on a pursuit, on an item, on a a goal and claim that it's all for the Lord. But in reality, it's for their own selfish desires. I'm reminded of, I used to have this problem being a musician and being uh, just versed in bands and music 
I used to actually see that there would be these uh, bands who would, uh, they weren't that great. They were like really like C bands, like mediocre bands. And because they couldn't make it big in the mainstream music world, they then pretended to be Christian. They said, well, let's just say that we're a Christian band. And now that we're a Christian band, all the Christians, they're going to like us because we're better than most Christian rock music right now. And so they used to do this. They used to slap Jesus' name on their, their pursuit on their band. And then they would get caught up in all kinds of trouble. And you would see the band kind of crumble apart. And, but the Christians at first would, would flock and they would go to see these bands because, you know, they're better than most other rock bands. And I, as a musician and as a Christian, had a problem with both of these kind of items. And you know what? That's, I don't want to do that in my own life of just saying, okay, well, I'm doing a, a mediocre job, but it's for the Lord, so God sees it as great. It's fine. It's good. I want to put the best of my ability into what I'm focused on, whether that be at work whether I'm a student for, for school, with my family. As Christians, when we're full of the Holy Spirit, we're full of the power of God. We should be representing Jesus in humility and love. You see, Simon, he wanted to slap Jesus on his pursuit because he wanted his own selfish gain. And he was rebuked for this, rebuked harshly. Peter's like, dude, your money perish with you. It's all going to burn. You thought that the gift of God could be purchased, he told them. And he told them to repent. And then Simon responds, though, to Peter's rebuke in verse 24. It says, then Simon answered and said, Simon said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they have testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now, I can only hope that Simon's repentance here was genuine, but we see the ministry continues on. And then in verse 26, now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Now again, this was the deacon, Philip, from Acts chapter 6. And God, this angel of the Lord, came to him and told him, Arise and go. Go to Gaza, out in the desert. And besides that, no other information is given. You see, he's given step one, and he had to be obedient. He had to take that step of faith in going into the desert. Look at verse 27. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. 
and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah, the prophet. So now we have this interesting character, this Ethiopian. Now this Ethiopian, it signifies that he was a man with a black countenance. And Ethiopia, this country, in the Hebrew language, it was these people were descendants from Cush. They were also known as the Cushites, who was the son of Ham. You guys remember the story of Noah. Noah had sons, one being Ham. Now, this place of Ethiopia, geographers, they make mention of two Ethiopias. One was in Africa, and the other one is in Asia and parts of Arabia, which is the one that we're studying right now, this one related to the New Testament. Now, this Ethiopian person, this man, it says that he was a eunuch. Now, eunuchs in their time had two types of meanings when somebody was called a eunuch. One meant that that person was actually castrated. That man was castrated. And the, the reason being many times that this person had been castrated was because he would have been around, let's say, the king's maidens. And he would have been uh, a leader around the king's palace. And in order so that the king could rest assured that this man wouldn't sleep with any of the women of this palace, the king would have this man castrated. I know it's quite mutilating and it's kind of scary. But this was in their culture back then. They had these eunuchs. Now, the word eunuch also could just simply mean that he was a prince. Um, Whether this man was literally castrated or whether he was just a prince, we don't know. But what we do know is that he is here in this chariot reading the book of Isaiah. And it says in verse 29, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. And this is what I love about Philip. First, God just tells him, look, you're going to go out to the desert. He's like, all right. Just takes that step of faith. And then God gives him the next step. He says, oh, go and run up by this chariot. And what I see here is steps of obedience and faith. Where sometimes we think of the far plan of where God needs to take us to. And we get anxious and worried and we're filled with like, man, what, do I, what am I supposed to do? How am I going to get all the way to this goal that I believe God has given me? Remember that God is going to give us steps of processes, of preparation. And each process, each step of preparation is preparation for the next step. And I believe it's key that we are content with what step God has us in, that we can rejoice where he has us today, this morning. So in verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. I love this divine appointment that we're seeing right here. Philip is just sent to go to Gaza, which is desert. And he's just taking the step. And then God tells him, go up next to this chariot. And he hears this eunuch just reading the Bible, reading these scriptures. 
And this is what you call divine appointment where it's like, wow, like this guy is reading the Bible who would have known. And then he's like, how am I supposed to understand this? And then suddenly Philip comes alongside the eunuch and he's like, do you understand what you're reading? And he's like, well, how am I supposed to understand this unless somebody guides me? I, I don't understand this. And so many times when we're reading scriptures, we don't understand what's going on. We're like, it's hard to understand this. Might as well be written all in Greek, which it was. And it's good to have people to look towards who have studied to help guide me. I need it. And the Holy Spirit himself, he also guides us. What I'm reminded of is that if Philip wouldn't have been obedient to the Lord, if he wouldn't have taken that step of faith to go to Gaza, perhaps the Sudic would have never heard what the meaning of what he was reading was. In Romans chapter 10, Paul writes this, how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. So what Paul is saying is that we need to have people who are preaching the word. We need to have people who are preaching the gospel, salvation. Otherwise, how else are gonna, people going to hear? So this eunuch realized that he needed someone to help guide him. And in verse 32, it says, the place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent so he opened not his mouth in his humiliation his justice was taken away and who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth so the eunuch answered Philip and said I ask you of whom does the prophet say this of himself or if some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Say, I love this. He's reading in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. He's reading about the sin-bearing Messiah. And he doesn't understand who is this prophet writing about? You see, in this chapter that this eunuch is reading from, it's from Isaiah chapter 53. And in Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah the prophet writes about how the Messiah would come to this world to bear our sins. In Isaiah 53 verses four and through six, it says this. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. 
He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. See, this eunuch, as he was reading this portion of Isaiah, was being convicted and drawn in by the Holy Spirit. This chapter in Isaiah, it testifies of God's love for us. It testifies of Jesus' love for us. Of what Jesus did on the cross by taking on our sins. And I realize that the power of salvation, it comes through the word. That as this eunuch was reading this book, let's say hypothetically he was castrated. He's reading now about this Messiah who came to this world to take away our pain, our suffering. Reading about how the stripes would be laid upon the Messiah. And perhaps he's reading this realizing like, man, I've experienced some crazy pain in my life. Jesus came so that he could bear that pain. And he's being now drawn in by the love of Christ. You see, the word needs to be what we're centered on. Because this ministry, it's centered on the word of God. All types of ministries nowadays They need to be centered on the word of God. And there's a lot of ministries nowadays. You could have a a ministry for any type of activity there is nowadays. If you go to the right church, they probably have all sorts of ministries for cultures and probably have like underwater basket weaving ministry. But all these things, like you need to have it centered on the word. Otherwise, it's just a social club. And we won't get built up through food and games. We need to get built up by the word. And as this eunuch is reading this in the Old Testament, it's pointing to Jesus' coming. And then in the New Testament, the whole New Testament points to Jesus' second coming. You guys know that there's over 300 prophecies concerning the Messiah? See, Jesus is being shown even in the Old Testament to this eunuch. And in verse 36, it says, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all, your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Wow. The eunuch is hearing this Philip preach the gospel, and he's like, well, there's some water right there. I want to get baptized. Can I get baptized? And what is baptism? 
baptism. Again, it's that outward expression of an inward change. It represents as a person goes under the water, that death, that death to self. And as they come up out of the water, being reborn, a new life. When we are going to have our baptism, for some of us, if I know you guys were in some deep sin, I'll keep you under for quite a bit of time to make sure it all gets out and then I'll bring you back up. <laughs> That's a joke. But it's just an outward expression. It's an outward expression of the inward change. But he told them that they need to believe with all their heart, not some of their heart, all of it. See, God does not want half-hearted conversion. Remember in Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea? Jesus wrote to the church of Laodicea. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. See, Jesus does not want us to be torn with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. He wants us to be wholly devoted to him. And he would wish that somebody was cold rather than being lukewarm. The reason being is when somebody is completely cold, the Holy Spirit can more easily take that person because they're so far without God and draw them to Jesus. Sometimes we have these people who are very good moral people, but because they don't fully and completely follow after Christ, they're, they're lost. People, I don't need to go to church. I'm a good person. I pay my taxes and you know, donate to the poor. And, but we need to be forgiven of sin fully and completely. We need to have that surrender to Christ, being born again, being made new. So our relationship with God is one of faith. He said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. You see, we can't pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we want to follow after. We have to fully, completely surrender ourselves. And it's not easy. You see, the self-life is the hardest life to kill. We don't want to kill that part of our, our sin, that part of our flesh that wants to live. We want to let that continue. But God is asking us every day to give it up. And that's what surrendered life is. It's not a one and done it's daily. It's every day saying, God, here I am today. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your spirit. Because we, we sin every day. We fail every day. But thank God for his grace that his graces are new every morning. In verse 38, so he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. 
so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Just like that. When God fulfilled the mission in Philip, he was like, all right, that's it, you're done. And this is one of the instances where we see this teleportation take place in the life of Philip where he was there and all of a sudden the eunuch looks up and then Philip is boom, gone. I'm reminded of that when God fulfills that mission in your life, you go home. And until you fulfill that call of God in your life, God is going to protect you and keep you invincible until you fulfill that mission. Now, I don't know what that mission is for you guys. I don't know what that call is exactly for you guys. But when God calls you, just know that nothing can go against you when you're with Christ. Yes, trials and tribulations will come our way, but God is going to use those to get you to where exactly where he wants you to be. It says in verse 40, but Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now, Azotus is 34 miles away from Gaza. So it wasn't like Philip just like ran on a chariot and then flew over there real quick. No, God just moved him. And sometimes that's what God does in our life. All of a sudden, major life change and all of a sudden we're moved. When God is finished with you in an area, in a task in life, suddenly the door closes and that's God just moving you, saying, okay, it's time to move. It's time to go forward. And we have to be okay with those things closing. We have to be okay with God moving us where he's leading us. So we see in this text this morning, not to use God for selfish gain, not to seek after your own desires that are not what God has for you, not to slap Jesus on an activity and say, well, this is you know God's work and he's ordained it. No, we first seek God. God, what do you want for us? We're going to God simply because he deserves it, because he is God. And then when we have that faith, when we have that relationship of walking in new life rather than in the old, knowing what Jesus has done on the cross for us, knowing that Jesus has a life full of the spirit, full of joy, full of peace, full of mercy that we could step into. So may you do that this week. We're going to have communion this morning. And as we, uh, before we partake of communion, if you need to get right with the Lord, there's things in your heart. I'm going to play a song right now and get right with God. Have that time of prayer of just asking God to forgive you. If there's things in your life that you need to correct, allow him to do that. Be open to what God has to do, wants to do in your life. So I'm going to play this song and let's just pray for a moment. Let's just pray right now, actually, before I do the song. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. I pray and I ask, Lord Jesus, that if there's anyone, Lord, who, Father, has been using you for selfish gain, who's been selfish and not wanting to surrender. Father, forgive us when we're like that. I pray you would soften our hearts, Lord God. If you want more of Jesus in this area, if you want to surrender, just go ahead and raise your hand right now. And I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. All right. Heavenly Father, we pray and we ask, Lord, for those who've raised their hands, that you would help them surrender fully and completely. Wash them and cleanse them by your son's blood. We thank you, Father, for salvation. Renew our spirit, Lord God. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.